Well, please follow along. I'm going to read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, starting in verse 9. This is God's holy word. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And may God bless the preaching of his word. As I mentioned at the outset of each year, we focus on the category of prayer and we do so because we want to pay attention to the power of prayer, to the privilege of prayer. We do this because we need fresh reminding, we need fresh encouragement and fresh envisioning to the power and the possibilities of prayer. Just this week, millions of people around the world watched uh, the Monday night football game between the Cincinnati Bengals and the Buffalo Bills, when in just the first quarter of the game, everything came to a halt as the safety for the Bills DeMar Hamlin went to tackle one of the players. He made the tackle. He got, got up from the ground and then immediately collapsed. When the trainer came over to the, to the field, he immediately ushered the paramedics over. They spent the next nine minutes performing CPR, seeking to get his heart beating again. Nine minutes where the stadium is silent. Thankfully, they were successful, and I've, I've heard that he's improved in the hospital this week. Well, what was fascinating to me was that while they were doing that at this, on this field, this professional football game, which they then canceled the remainder of the game, while they were waiting to see what would happen, the entire stadium was in a hush. The players on the field were on their knees praying. I saw a camera shot of, of a large section of the fans where someone was leading them in praying the Lord's Prayer. Then later on ESPN, of all places, Dan Orlovsky, a former NFL player himself, on national TV, said, I don't know, know what to do right now. I'm not even sure if this is appropriate, but I think we need to pray. And so he prayed to the triune God on national TV on DeMar's behalf. It was a remarkable moment because it revealed that when faced with circumstances that are beyond our ability to control, people believe in the power of prayer. We don't always know how to pray. It can often be intimidating to do it. But we know instinctively that this is something that we should do. And, and Jesus teaches us how to do it here. And so at the start of this new year, as we face all kinds of new challenges, there will be all kinds of circumstances this year that are outside of our control, all kinds of new needs, health concerns, financial hardship, career decisions, relational burdens, Countless of them out of our control, we know that we must be a people of prayer. And so this morning, what I want to do is take you through this very well-known prayer. I'm no doubt many of you have memorized this prayer. If you've memorized nothing else in Scripture, you may know this one well. And I believe that as Jesus teaches us himself how to pray, this passage, this simple prayer... Will, do, will give us everything that we need to cultivate a deeper prayer life. Full of faith, with access to the power of the Almighty, leading to a life of strength and hope and joy. 
Now, this is a simple passage, but it is a very rich passage that we could preach countless messages on, no doubt. But I have one opportunity this morning with a very limited amount of time. So we won't touch on every detail, but we're going to simply walk through this text. We'll walk through this passage, through this prayer, and comment along the way. So first, verse 9, Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. A.W. Tozer very famously said, The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think of God. The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. And while that is true in all kinds of different circumstances, that is certainly particularly relevant when we pray. And Jesus tells us here that that thought about God that should come into our mind when we pray is Father. Father. Jesus says, listen, I don't want you to think of God the way that the pagans do. In verse 5, the way that they think of their gods, that they need to be somehow appeased or bribed or persuaded. No, don't, do not be like them. Rather, Jesus invites us to come to God as our Father in heaven. Jesus wants you to know that you do not approach some distant deity for whom you need to say just the right words and do it in just the right order so that God will answer you. Instead, Jesus radically reshapes the way that we can approach God as a child comes to his father. I heard this wonderful story about D.L. Moody. As he was preaching in an assembly one time, there was another man who was leading the meeting, and this man was was going on praying, and he was praying with all kinds of flowery oratory. He was taking a very long time to pray without really going anywhere or asking for anything at all. And so Moody gently and quietly walks over to him. He puts his hand on his shoulder, and and he whispers to him, Call him Father and ask for something. What a simple way to pray when approached by his barber, Martin Luther taught him a simple way to pray by simply taking this text and praying it ahead of his prayer time, just reciting it to kind of set his mood, to kind of prime his heart. Now, I realize that this way of approaching God may not seem new to us. Many of us have grown up praying to God just like this. But what you must understand is that this this way of approaching God, this was revolutionary to the people that Jesus was speaking to. This was revolutionary to the religious leaders of the day. As you read the Old Testament, you will see that no one ever approached God quite this way. This never happened in the Old Testament. This would have seemed presumptuous to the leaders. Jesus prayed to God as his Father. This was a personal manner of speaking to God. It was relational. He was confident in his approach. But what is even more astounding is that not only does Jesus approach God as Father with confidence, personally, relationally, but that He makes it possible for you and I to approach God this way as well. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, says, To all received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. What we see here is that by trusting in Jesus Christ to save you from sin and death, by calling Him as Lord as well as Savior, 
you have been born again as a child of God. You have been adopted into His family. And until that happens, you cannot properly pray this prayer. You cannot pray these words. But once you put your faith in Christ, you are filled with the Spirit of God to call Him Abba, Father. You can approach Him with confidence as your Father. And this, this is not something to take for granted. This is not something to gloss over. Yes, I know he's my father. Yep, I get it. Okay, bigger and better things. This is worth dwelling on. This is worth considering in detail. J.I. Packer, a dear saint who is now with the Lord, said, you sum up the whole of the New Testament, the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase, if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So how about you? How does that thought of God as Father control your worship? How does that guide your thoughts as you pray to God each day? I know that Many in this room have different experiences of what a father is. Many here didn't have a godly father. Some here do not, have never met their biological father. Some here I know have experiences with your father that have just been downright agonizing. And I, I think you know that my heart aches with you in that hard reality. But I also want everyone here to look at me and to, and to hear that your heavenly father, he's perfect. Your Father in heaven is good. He sits on His throne and He intends good. He works all things for your good. And so you can trust Him. You can relax with Him. With this Father, you can let your guard down. Listen, this year may bring hard news. You may find yourself in a desperate place, but here... Jesus invites you to come to your Father in heaven and to approach him and to entrust yourself to his good, sovereign care. And by the way, when he designates his Father in heaven, he's not speaking of a location as much as a position. What he's saying is your Father, he's in heaven. He is on his throne, and he is right now ruling and reigning sovereignly over all things. He is in control. This God, your Father, he is the one who numbers your years and orders your days, and you can trust him. And so when Jesus says that we're to pray, hallowed be your name, what we're doing is that we're recognizing this. We're recognizing that God is sovereign, and we are setting him apart in our hearts. To hallow God's name is to love what he loves and to love his glory, his own name. When we pray this, what we're praying is that God shapes our hearts after his own. Listen, as we pray this kind of prayer, our hearts and our affections, our loves will align with God's. 
If you were to get up this in the morning and just pray a simple prayer of, Father, your name is holy. You are far more incredible, far more glorious, far more majestic than anything that this world has to offer, anything that I can think of or imagine. If you were just to wake up each day praying like that, your affections will come into line with that. You will start to love this God that you realize and know is bigger than you, bigger than this world, far bigger than anything that you understand. You see, our prayers shape us. Over the years, I've read a number of books on the topic of prayer because I always feel, like many of you, I, I, I need to grow in prayer. I often find myself, even this morning, praying in the corporate prayer time. I, I, I want to grow in prayer. And so I've read a number of books, and may, maybe the best book that I've read on prayer is by Don Carson called A Call to Spiritual Reformation. It's priorities from Paul and his prayers. And in this book, on, chapter th- on page 31, it says something very helpful to me. Carson writes, we must remember that the Bible simultaneously pictures God as utterly sovereign. And as a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. Of the various models that usefully capture both of these poles, the model of a personal relationship with the Father is as helpful as any. If a boy asks his father for several things all within the father's power to give, the father may give him one of them right away. Delay giving him another. Decline to give him a third. Set up a condition for a fourth. The child is not assured of receiving something because he has used the right incantation. That would be magic. The father may decline to give something because he knows it is not in the child's best interest. He may delay giving something else because he knows that so many requests from his young son are temporary and whimsical. He may also withhold something that he knows the child needs until the child asks for it in an appropriate way. But above all, The wise father is more interested in a relationship with his son than in merely giving him things. Giving him things constitutes part of that relationship, but certainly not all of it. The father and son may enjoy simply going out for walks together. Often the son will talk with his father, not merely to obtain something or even to find out something, but simply because he likes to be with him. Now, I I find this... So helpful when it comes to our prayer life because even and especially as we make specific requests to God and He invites our specific requests. It is important to remember who we're praying to. That informs how we approach Him. It's important to remember what we're praying for. That is, Jesus is modeling for us here. He gives us this model prayer. He says, pray like this, not pray just this. It's not a prayer just for mere repetition. Jesus is modeling for us and teaching us how to pray aware that God is our good Father in heaven, that He intends all things for our good, and therefore His will, His kingdom, well, that that is the best possible thing that we can be aligning our desires to and conforming our hearts to and asking the Father for. Our Father is in heaven. He is on His throne. He is sovereign and in control. While, While we cannot see the future... He is governing it even now. While our hearts are anxious and troubled, His is not. 
Whatever is to come, we can rest assured that the Father who knows us and loves us, He is on, our, on His throne working all things together for good. Friends, these are glorious realities. They are absolutely true. They are worth spending time dwelling on and considering as we go to our Father in prayer this year. There's so much more to be said, but we need to move along. Verse 10, Jesus says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' desire for you as you pray this year would be that you would pray these kinds of prayers, that you would pray for God's kingdom to come, that you would pray for God's will to be done, because this focuses our hearts on what is important to God Almighty. This gives us the divine perspective that we so desperately need, because it's so easy to be caught up in the cares of this world and in the pleasures of this world. It's so easy to be distracted and, and confined to what's going on right around us, That we forget that life is short, that eternity is long, that we are simply sojourners in this world, that this is not our home. To pray for God's kingdom to come is to confess that the kingdom of God is far more important than the kingdom of this world. Every single day I need this reminder, I need to prime my heart, remember myself that I'm aiming for God's kingdom because it is so easy and so tempting to work hard at building my kingdom. My kingdom is not as impressive, although it consumes most of my thoughts. You see, in the kingdom of Aaron, it is my will and my desires that are sought after. In the kingdom of Aaron, my comfort is more important than my growth. In the kingdom of Aaron, suffering and struggle have no place and no purpose whatsoever. In my kingdom, I am the king, and I want others to fall in line or get out of the way, especially when I'm driving. And this is where Jesus so gently but necessarily adjusts our view and reminds us that there is one God and that I am not him. I'm not the king. And neither are you. As tempting as that is, we are citizens of God's kingdom and we are to be about God's business. His priorities are not always our priorities. His ways are not our ways. And therefore, we must daily die to ourselves to die to our self-centered desires, to pray bigger prayers than our kingdom. To pray for God's kingdom to come, it also entails that we long for and desire for the kingdom to come in the hearts of others. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a masterful book out of his sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, which this falls right in the middle of. And he addressed this section. He said, when we pray, thy kingdom come... We are praying for the success of the gospel, its sway and power. We are praying for the conversion of men and women. We are praying that the kingdom of God may come today in Britain, in Europe, in America, in Australia, everywhere in the world. Thy kingdom come is an all-inclusive missionary prayer. Again, we... Jesus teaches us this because he wants to shape our hearts to love what God loves and to live according to his ordained pattern. That means looking outside of ourselves. I love, even this morning, I was talking to one of the brothers in this room who was reminding me, we want to think outside of ourselves, outside of this church, outside of this community. We want to see the global advance of the gospel around the world. And that starts in our neighborhoods. That starts in our workplaces. Don Carson, in his commentary on this book, writes, 
These first three petitions, though they focus on God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will, are nevertheless prayers that he may act in such a way that his people will hallow his name, submit to his reign, and do his will. It is therefore impossible to pray this prayer in sincerity without humbly committing oneself to such a course. So as we pray these prayers, we want to then act in accordance with the result of the prayers. As we pray, God, let your kingdom come around the world, we want to then say, God, where does it start? Give me opportunities. Point me in the direction of where you'd like me to take part in advancing your kingdom. This helps us to focus our desires and our affections more on God's plans than on my own. This helps me embrace a contented heart when life doesn't go my way. And life, it, it rarely goes my way. The stock market does not go my way. The various elections of this world rarely go my way. My sports teams rarely perform the way that I want them to. The weather does not always cooperate with my plans. Things with my business don't always go my way. My, bare, my body rarely performs the way that I'd like it to. My children point out that I have more gray in my beard with each passing year. My mirror reflects an increased amount of damage done every time that I look at it. So when we pray for God's kingdom to come and for God's will to be done, we are dying to ourselves and entrusting our lives, our future, and this world to our good and faithful God. When we submit ourselves to his rule and reign, only then will our lives make sense and our hearts find contentment. You see, when, when we go about life in a way other than how he's patterned it for, we are just doomed to frustration and discontentment. If we don't pattern our lives after him, what we're doing is we're trying to find contentment and satisfaction in broken cisterns that Jeremiah warns us about. They will never satisfy. But the good news is, as Jesus teaches us here, the God of this universe is ruling and reigning, and therefore we can relax. It doesn't all depend upon us. The world is not what we make of it. I can stop giving into annoyance and frustration and wringing my hands when the traffic isn't what I want it to be and the people in my life don't do what I want them to do. When I look at the world and I think, what, what is going on? I can remind myself by praying this kind of prayer, God is in control. Verse 11. Jesus prays, give us this day our daily bread. In the book of Exodus, you remember the Israelites were, were going through the wilderness after, after they were delivered from Egypt. And they were dependent upon God every day in that wilderness to provide food. Each day, he said, I will provide for you food enough for this day. You, you can't store it up. You can't save it for tomorrow. But each day... I'm going to provide it. So you can imagine, if you're like me, the, the kind of anxiety that would rise up. Is it going to show up today? I don't know. But they were dependent upon him every day for his provision. And so this prayer would have been well understood in that context. But you fast forward a few thousand years, we have refrigerators. We have freezers. We have all kinds of ways to store up food. We have freeze-dried and canned food that lasts for years. More than that, we have bank accounts, typically the ability to purchase whatever kind of provisions that we need for weeks and months at a time. 
As a result, this petition to provide for us our daily bread often falls deaf on our ears. Here in the Western world where affluence and self-sufficiency are, are seen as virtues. But this is surely because we forget that God is sovereign over all things, including our ability to work. Including our ability to earn income to purchase food, and, and including the weather and the ability to get to work. All things that have been disrupted in recent years that, that remind us just how fragile that is. I, I've had numerous friends in recent history lose their ability to work and to earn income due to various factors. And this petition took on a new meaning for them as they became dependent in a new way. And therefore, we want to heed this teaching from the Lord Jesus in this verse, celebrating God's gracious provision for us with every meal, to recognize with every meal, with the ability to get up and go to work, with it, when your car starts in the morning, when you, when you get there without any accidents, we want to celebrate that that is God's kindness. That is God's way of providing for us. It is God's kindness that, that provides truckers that deliver food to HEB for you. It is God's kindness that does all kinds of things that result in daily provision of food and sustenance for all of us. But again, we do this, again, aware of who we're asking and knowing that even as he clothes the flowers of the field and the birds of the air, how much more valuable we are to him than they. So surely he will do it. St. Augustine commented on this verse that daily bread is a metaphor for necessities rather than luxuries. Needs over greeds. Proverbs 30, verse 8 says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with a food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This year, as we work, as we eat, as we go about our days, we want to go about them, remembering where our provision ultimately comes from, celebrating that and praising God when when our jobs are threatened, we can go forward with confidence in God. When our health fails or injuries occur, we can seek the Lord for our daily need and trust that He will be faithful. Continuing on in verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It, it's easy to be discouraged about our prayer lives. It's easy to be to think, no, no, I, I need to shrink back. It's easy to be dissuaded each day, not, not only due to distraction, but also I find one of the most discouraging things uh, to prayer than anything else is the guilt and shame that accompanies sin. Have you ever felt that, that you, know, you, you find yourself convicted of sin in a particular way and, and you, you, somebody calls you to pray and you think, no, I, I, I can't do that right now. I need to, I need to get right with God. I need to fix myself. I need to clean myself up before I can go to him. Like Adam and Eve, we often keep our distance from him when we know that we've screwed up. But like a, God, but like a good father does, he knows our weakness. Last week, Ken preached a wonderful message on Psalm 103 where we heard that God knows that we are but dust. And just as he makes provision for our daily bread, so he makes provision for our daily sin. There's never a day that we don't need forgiveness. On our best days, we need mercy from God. 
but God is rich in mercy and abounding in grace. And when we go to Him and ask this prayer, Father, forgive us our debts, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our sins, we should go to Him. Regular confession, which we should have as a pattern in our life, regular confession, regular confession should not lead us to discouragement of, gosh, here I am again, I need forgiveness again. It's just the state of things. We will need to confess our sin until the day we die. We will need forgiveness and mercy and grace until we're with Him in glory. And regular confession should not discourage us, but rather it should produce in us an increased confidence, an increased assurance and joy, never less. You see, the presence of conviction of sin is evidence of God's Spirit working in your life. When you have conviction of sin, you know that God's at work, and therefore Philippians 1.6 is true for you. I know that he who has begun a good work in you, he will bring it to completion. It's so when you're convicted of sin, you can thank the Lord for that. You can go to him with confidence and assurance and confess that sin. You should not lose heart. I want to exhort you not to give in to the lies of the enemy that would weigh you down with guilt and shame. Not to allow Satan to sideline you in the mission that God has for you because he draws your attention to your weakness and sin. Rather, take heart in the promise of 1 John that promises us when we confess our sins, our Savior is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And he also says in there, if anyone thinks that he is without sin, he is a liar. He, he does not know the truth about him. And as we receive mercy from God, we want to allow that mercy to shape how we relate to others. You see the conditional nature of, of this prayer. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. So the assumption there is that forgiven people forgive people. Those who are loved much, love much. There is no more pressing need in the world right now than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other need. We, we don't need a, if, if we needed a politician, Jesus, the Lord would have sent us one. But we needed a Savior. And so that's what God provided. And as we celebrate God's forgiveness in our own lives, we want to commit to sharing it and proclaiming it with others. We want to um, be aware that people may be more open to spiritual conversations right now than you realize. Even this week, as, we, as, as all kinds of the news cycle was centered around this, what happened on Monday night with Damar Hamlin on that football field, it was fascinating to see how much spiritual conversation took place. On CNN, Anderson Cooper, who is not known for spiritual conversation, had uh, former all-star tight end Benjamin Watson on the, on, the, on the show, and he was talking to him about this injury. And Anderson said, you know, it really just confronts me with the frailty of human life. And Benjamin Watson, a, a strong believer, said, Anderson, I think you're exactly right. He says, I mean, it really begs the question, where are you with God? He says, we have the hope of eternity through forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. This is on CNN. People are open to spiritual conversations more than you realize. And I thank God for Benjamin Watson, for, for him being ready, for him having the courage on national TV to proclaim the hope of, of Christ. What a wonderful moment. And I, I pray, you may not have opportunities on national TV. I hope you do. But, but you will have opportunities. 
And we want to ask the Lord to help us prepare our hearts to be ready with an answer. You'll have opportunities. You, you want to pray for gospel conversations to take place in your neighborhoods with extended family, in your workplace. They will take work to bring them about. But as you soak in the forgiveness of, that you have received from God through Christ Jesus, how can we but tell others about that? So soak in that forgiveness. Meditate on the gospel and pray for opportunities. Finally, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This final petition of the Lord's Prayer recognizes our weakness and our vulnerability. And Jesus models for us that we must ask God for spiritual strength. And protection. I, I don't know what's in store for you this year. But it is guaranteed to bring new temptations and new attacks from the enemy. I don't say that to scare you. <laughs> to be Debbie Downer to ran on the freight. I come into the new year always excited and, and asking the Lord, what, what do you have this year? But I also want us to prepare ourselves. We should be sobered by this reality, by this prayer. Jesus doesn't say, don't worry about anything, everything's fine. No, he says, we need to ask the Lord, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. There, there, there is real evil in the land. There is real temptation without end within. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to, lead, to leave the God I love. Take my heart, take and seal it, seal it for thy court above. We want to sing those kinds of songs. We want to pray those kinds of prayers because we want to prepare accordingly. Probably the single quote that has most shaped my prayer life comes from John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Piper writes, it is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Prayer gives us the significance of frontline forces and gives God the glory of a limitless provider. The one who gives the power gets the glory. God gives us the gift of prayer for all kinds of things, but it's wise to consider the different types of prayers that we pray. What, what consumes most of my prayers? All too often, my prayers can be consumed with comfort, with ease, with freedom from suffering. God gives us the gift of prayer to commune with Him and to enjoy fellowship with Him, but He also gives it as a weapon of spiritual warfare. And we never want to neglect that aspect of prayer. 
We won't allow that to be a significant, controlling way that we go to the Lord in prayer. If you study the prayers of the Bible, in that book by Carson, that's what he's doing, you will search in vain for, par- for prayers geared toward a more comfortable life. Paul was regularly beaten and imprisoned. And so you would imagine that he's regularly saying, uh, hey guys, would you pray that, uh, that they don't catch me this time? Would you, would you pray that I'll get out of prison? Rather, what he's praying is that while he is being beaten and while he is imprisoned, that God would provide him perseverance in the faith, that he would finish the course that God has laid out for him. He is praying for spiritual fruit, that even as he's chained up, that the gospel would go forth. We want to learn from those prayers. We, we certainly want to look at people like Paul and, and Jesus and others and the way that they prayed when, when Jesus said, you know, Father, let this cup pass from me, but if not, nevertheless, your will, not mine, be done. We, we can be in awe of those and we can celebrate those, but we don't want to see them as exceptional. We want to see them as patternistic. We want to see them as models, as Jesus lays out this prayer, models that should inform the way that we pray. As we seek to be faithful this year as God's ambassadors, we are seeking to grow in evangelistic uh, discipline and fervor. It is guaranteed that as we go about God's kingdom and His ways, we will face resistance from the enemy. When you work for the advance of God's kingdom, you will be well aware of your weakness. You'll be tempted like Moses, no, no, please send someone else, not me. I'm an introvert, I'm, I'm, I don't know what to say, please, please send John, please send, Je- please send Ken, please send somebody other than me to speak. You'll face all kinds of temptations to abandon the mission and to, and to retreat to a more comfortable and safer position. But that's not where God promises to meet us. Sinclair Ferguson reminds us wonderfully that We are weak, but He, God, is strong. The Christian who does not know his weakness can therefore neither pray this prayer nor experience God's strength. The Christian who knows his weakness but is a praying Christian will be garrisoned by the Lord's strength. Friends, what a wonderful promise! As we go, God goes with us. He has promised to go with us. He has promised to speak through us. He has promised to give us words, to fill us with His Spirit, never to leave us, never to abandon us, but always to be with us. And so my desire for you this year, I I hope that 2023 is your best year yet. I hope you have all kinds of reasons to celebrate and to praise and to come forward and say, listen to this happened, this happened, and this happened. That this year you will see God do things that you've never dreamed of. So I want to pray toward that end. But I also want to invite you to go to your Father in secret every day as He teaches us in this passage. And to pray to your Father. Pray with your community group. Pray with us on Sunday mornings before the meeting. And let's heed the Savior's invitation to pray like this and to have our hearts aligned with His and for for our mission to be patterned after our sovereign Lord's and to receive grace and mercy and strength for what He calls us to. 
You see, it's on our knees that our priorities will be brought into proper focus. So I want to invite the worship band to come back and join us on stage and to lead us in one final song. And I want to invite you as we sing to come along with me this year. To give up control of our lives and to seek the Father's kingdom. He, casts us to, he invites us to cast our anxieties upon the Lord who loves you. He invites us to seek Him for all our needs. And he invites us to ask Him to do far more than we could imagine. Well, Father, we thank You for this prayer. We thank You for Your Word. And we ask You now, Lord, to bring these truths to bear in our lives that You would send us out of here, Lord, as doers of the Word and not hearers only. Even now as we sing, Lord, let us be informed as we sing by the fact that we approach you as Father. Our Father, who has made an end of all our sin. Our Father, who has adopted us into your kingdom. Our Father, who gives us confidence and joy as we approach you in prayer. Let us sing now with joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.